Hello and welcome. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with the WPFW News Team. This is Friday Evening Fireside, a long-form version of our Monday morning news program. We're bringing you three extended interviews from last Monday. As always, our intention is to preserve the discursive nature of our work and share it with our listeners. In this edition of Friday Evening Fireside, reporter Amara Evering discusses the uproar over academic use of human remains from the MOVE bombings with UMass Amherst historian Dr. Samuel Redman. I talk enforcement of wage theft protections with Center for Public Integrity reporter Alexia Fernandez-Campbell. And first up, News Director Askia Mohammed sits down with Paulette Matthews, Vice President of the Barry Farm Tenant and Allies Association. Matthews lived in the Barry Farm community for 21 years before recently being displaced to LaDroit Park. She says Washington, D.C. is bowing to the wishes of moneyed, out-of-town developers while giving public housing residents only monopoly money for their projects. been very stressful and emotional. Um, basically, when you really think about um, public housing, sad to say, but true, the elements are the elements. And so when you are moved from one property to another, you pretty much uh, experience those same elements. Um, the the uh, the proximity or the, the how big or small the property is, is where there's the difference. Um, from Bray Farms, um, it's a large um, area. Um, and here, it's small. It's like V Street, W Street, the alley. Um, um, everyone used to always talk about how bad Bray Farms was. And the elements are basically, to me, in all public housing developments. The, the difference for me here is that those same things happen, but I'm in a small, I guess you could say, battlefield. So therefore, um, like all of it is really stressful, no matter how you look at it. And the fact that um, the word games are played, um, they're doing it for our best interest, but because of our living conditions, we, we want to put you in a, you know, but the, the, the truth be told, they put you in the same thing while you wait 10 or 20 years to try to get to the right thing or the better thing. So they say they're doing it for us and you might not never make it there due to the policies and procedures or due to the fact that you might die, whether it be through stress or old age or whatever, because the process of how long it takes for them to rebuild, um, is, is a headache within itself and and it's very stressful. And, and what they don't seem to realize is that when you do live in a community and you've been there for some time, that's almost like um, a family, a connection. It's someone that you could go to, not necessarily get a slice of bread, but to check on an elder person to see if they are right because you haven't seen them. 
once they put you in a whole nother location, that's a thing of maybe, um, you know, learning new, new, new people to, you know, and it's hard out here now that it's the trust. You don't know who to trust or what to trust or, or, or what's going on. So sometimes it put a person who actually, uh, move into a house before the Corona and stay in the house. They're already staying in the house. Um, because, you know, they're used to one place there, and especially for seniors to try to get connected. You know, it's just, it's just so much out of here. It's just, it's just a stressful event. And at the same time, it's so sick and sad that this hasn't just started happening within the last 10, 20 years. This has been happening forever. And it's sad to think that us as human beings can't seem to get it together to make it better for all people. We just want to complicate things and make it so more worse. I, I still haven't figured out why I see so many cranes in the sky, so many people on the ground. And yet what you build is still outrageously high and people can hardly hardly even move into it. So it, it, it it's just, I mean, it's like a big puzzle and uh, nobody wants to put the pieces in the right place because the pieces are there. They just don't want to do it. And basically it's all about money and um, that's it. <laughs> You know, and and to build first concept, it depends on who you talk to, what that really means. Because for me, I would think it'd be to put something somewhere first and then let us move into it, if that's what you really want to, uh, to do and be in a better neighborhood. But throughout all of it, all, all I constantly see is uh, discrimination and segregation. And I don't care who tells me that it's not so, it is. There's no way around it. And basically, money is is the motive to all the madness and and as we sit here and point fingers i mean that's basically we learn that in the process because that's basically what our system seems to do but they will displace us quickly they will we will regardless of how how low our income is or how high it could possibly be um when you put your you know taxes in you put your time in working somewhere they will easily dismiss you like you're not nothing. How long did you and your family live in the Well, Mary you know, it was so crazy that um, when I actually moved to Murray Farms, I didn't even realize the length of time until it was time for us to move out that I had been there 21 years. But I actually, to my knowledge, was the only one in my family that lived in public housing. So what was the promise of the city that you could return to Berry Farm? They say that we can return, but those are just words out of their mouth. They also have a resolution. That's just something on paper. As we all know, just like when Corona came through, things are so easy to be switched and changed. And they was doing that before Corona. So um, it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel like I have a safety net. It makes me feel like there's like a deep hole that I could constantly keep falling down into because they're so, you know, they have no problems with amending the, amending or changing things to make it best fit them. And again, go back to that money thing because it's really all about money. It's not really about people or the people that they claim or take oaths. Even when we get to talking about people who are in office, they take oaths, they take jobs, they say the mission is to do whatever else for the people. But actually, to me, I don't see that. Because if, if that's the mission, then you have failed. 
and 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 it's sad to think that we constantly go in for um hearings, um the appeals and all this different stuff. And again, this stuff hasn't just happened. And everybody can feel it and see it, but then some that has that power to make the changes are different, but the little bit that they change doesn't seem to, you know, add up to what's going on. So I don't think I would love to get back to Bird Farms. Um, I was born and raised in the District of Columbia. Proceedings rather that take place um, and to keep going around them all very much like everybody's like it's a new thing we have to figure out. It, it's just crazy to me. And then how they are able to move and displace us with monopoly money because I call it monopoly money because of the mere fact that they never seem to have enough money to finish the project. Even when you think about like Arthur Capers or, you know, something like they don't never have it, but those who vote, you know, and all of that, and they pass the bill and it goes through, act like they haven't figured it out. And it's just as plain and simple as the street sign on your street that it's not working. And it hasn't been. And to me, it's all by design because you keep doing it. You say you want to um, redevelop, but you don't want to redevelop your laws to actually make it fit to, uh, I'm just going to say everybody, you know. So, I don't know. It's just a big mess, you know, and constantly just keep going around and around and around the Marlboro, which, like, you don't have enough sense that God gave you to know that this is not working, but it's not about the people. It's changed to me, like I said. It's all about the money and those who have it. But my thing is, you can't diss me. Uh, I matter uh, just like everybody else. A human being is a human being all day long. And who are you discriminate to discriminate because of their money, their education, or whatever? I mean, we're all in this mess together, and we need to figure out a way to clear this mess up because it's a big mess. <laughs> I'm thankful to be alive, but it's a big mess. Aside from returning to your home of 21 years, what other benefits would you like to see if and when you get back to Berry Farm? They need to make it legal and binding where it, oh, it cannot change. Um, just like they don't want to go into like the regular laws of the Constitution and change things that George Washington, who don't have a clue of what's going on now, you hear me, um, and make it make it stick just like that, where, where they don't see that there needs to be a change in that. It shouldn't be a change. And when someone leaves their dwellings or home, wherever they are staying, and and you move them out because of the deplorable conditions that you have allowed them to live in and telling them now that they want to, um, you know, want you to live better, safer, whatever. And actually, that's just a way to get you out because the coming back is not going to happen. And what I would like for them to, to do is guarantee that anybody that they displace from anywhere um, says to make it, you know, better living conditions to guarantee and have it in writing that that will happen. Um, and when you return back to 
the neighborhood more than likely most times what they do they bring in like storefronts and things of that nature um even through the appeal my thing was if you were a resident of Bury Farms you should have first bids of actually renting um like a, a I don't know how they, is it going to call them sweets buildings or whatever uh, you should be able to have that first bid to like if you want to do a daycare or uh, a car detail, you should be able to have a mortgage. And I was just saying, starting out maybe like five dollars a month, um, and that might sound crazy, but just think if it had to happen, very fast was up, and um, when the uh, pandemic and you just started your business. You might you might just be SOL at this point. Um, and so to guarantee that the residents can do something like that, I don't know, that, that right to return, that, that that's just something that I just hope and pray that they will put together and make it stick. Berry Farm has a rich history and many, yes, his, many historic buildings. And what would yes, you like... Sir. What would you like to see happen to those historic buildings? All right. Now, you know, um, I guess you know, that I'm a, I am one of the pe people, because I am the Bray Farms Tenant Allies Vice President, and we went to court for that. And actually, when I moved to Bray Farms, I was clueless. It wasn't until... Um, they came and said, well, we're going to do X, Y, Z. I got more into um, research about Bray Farms, and I was surprised. And actually, I feel as though the whole Bray Farms community should have been a historical uh, site. But we managed to get Stevens Road at the bottom. And what I would like for there to be, uh, most importantly down on that bottom end, is somewhat as a museum. Um, to talk about the history, which a lot of people don't know, which we was to learn in school. And you don't hear about it in February, um, you know, um, on Black History Month. Um, you never really hear it flash over the TV or anything like that. Um, for there to be knowledge of um, the people, uh, the richness of the land, just the, and the fact that actually it was black slaves who not just... Um, they didn't buy their homes. They built them. They bought the land. And that buying that land, to me, is like a very important piece to the puzzle that never was able to develop itself because the government came and took it from them just that quick. Because if they had been able to fight for it and had more backing at the time, who's to say? In D.C. now, you don't own the land. You can buy a house and you can, you know, you can put a house, but you don't own it. That could have changed the whole narrative. Um, but because the government came and swiped it from up under their feet, there we have it. Um, and here we go. They still are taking and dismissing. 
And so, um, like I said, it's nothing new to anybody. Everybody knows it. Everybody can see that's what's happening. But my thing is, we're in 2021. When are we as human beings and those who take positions um, on these boards and everywhere else, and even in the White House, if you want to go that far, haven't figured out that it's a better way that we can do it and we can all can be uh, what makes the change in the world for everybody because this it really doesn't make any sense so I would like something like that to take place I also would like the fact that because they never thought to do it even in the redevelopment and we fought for it and we got it that we should not be left out of the excuse me the planning um, that's another thing that takes place uh, once they set foot in and say we're going to do XYZ and ZYX those that they claim supposed to be coming back to it or the residents that's coming back to it, they never involve the residents. And so um, more involvement um, from the residents that you claim you serve should be able to take place. Um, and I feel the same way about the uh, historical preservation piece. I would like to see uh, that museum for, for starters. And, um, you know, just uh, things that the community the community can do outside of that. I, like, I have a couple little things going on in my head, but um, that's the my most important piece for me um, for that site is to be a part of the historical preservation, to let there be some type of uh, building whether Smithsonian is involved in it or something, and also that the residents be able to come back to Farms. Mrs. Paulette Matthews, thank you so very much for talking with us about your experience and about hopefully your return to the Berry Farm. Yeah, because I'm 62 right now and I could and I might not, but the most important piece of that is I'm a native Washingtonian, so I would love to be able to be a part of Washington, D.C., not be forced out of D.C., but if I want to leave to go somewhere else, then that be my choice. And I don't want to be forced out because of <clears throat> money. So this is my native home and place. This is where I, I like to be, again, like I said, unless I choose to want to pick up and leave, not be pushed around or shuffled around in the District of Columbia and not be told things by those and then they switch it up in the uh, language or whatever, the bill that they pass. Thank and not you. just for me, that's for all those that live in the District of Columbia. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That was Paulette Matthews, Vice President of the Barry Farm Tenant and Allies Association, in conversation with News Director Askia Muhammad. Don't forget, you can follow our news team on Twitter at WPFWMMQB, or follow the station itself at WPFWDC. Visit WPFW.org to listen live and to become a sustainer of listener-supported radio in the nation's capital. Next up, I sit down with Center for Public Integrity senior reporter Alexia Fernandez-Campbell 
to better understand her recent report on wage theft. The report, which you can read by visiting publicintegrity.org, says that the Federal Department of Labor has failed to punish employers who repeatedly steal wages from workers. Typically, workers are paid back in full, but critics say forcing back pay alone isn't enough to prevent wage theft, without additional financial damages levied against thieving employers. So to start, I mean, your report talks about a few, you know, types of jobs that are particularly prone to wage theft, you know, childcare, food service, uh, security guards, and some others. And just to start, I'm, I'm curious, what about these industries or employers in, this, in these industries make workers in these industries more susceptible or vulnerable to wage theft? Yeah, that's a good question, because um, in these jobs, there are a lot of people who, um, you know, they're, they didn't go to college, they obviously didn't go to law school, they may not be familiar with the laws. And they're more vulnerable also because, you know, they get paid so little that they, um, that they depend on their paycheck, like they live paycheck to paycheck. And so they're more likely to be afraid of complaining. They're, they're very dependent on their jobs. They can't just like, easily like you know miss a week of work or anything like that so um they're more likely to either take abuse or just not understand their rights that's why and it seems like i mean i know there's not hard data on this but it seems like that is accentuated during the pandemic where workers are more likely to take abuse because they're more concerned about losing jobs right yeah so there's been some research some interesting research from rutgers that shows like during the last recession um that employers were much more likely to pay less than the minimum wage because there is like census bureau survey that asks people how much you worked and how many hours you worked and how much you earned and so they can tell who was work earning less than the minimum wage and uh that went up a lot more during the recession so there's this so the economists believe that whenever there's any kind of recession including the pandemic recession that this is happening more because workers don't have as many options of where they can work and jobs are more scarce so they're more likely to be quiet if they know they're take, being taken advantage of. Sure. You know, one of the companies that you write about in your report is this G4S security company, um, which, you know, claimed that its wage theft issues were primarily at subsidiaries under independent management, it, which seems like a way to sort of deflect blame a little bit from the, from the company. And I, I, I'm curious, beyond sort of a, a PR deflection of blame, is it possible for companies to actually avoid legal responsibility for wage theft if they say it occurred at a subsidiary or, or at a franchise? Yeah, so I don't, I don't know how it works with a subsidiary. I would imagine that um, if it's a subsidiary, you're still the, um, the owner of the company. That's a good question. I know when it comes to franchises. So what we saw in the data was a lot of like Subway restaurants, Chipotle, McDonald's restaurants, they commit a lot of wage theft, but because they're owned by independent franchises, they didn't necessarily rise to the top because there are just so many different companies that run them. And I know that like McDonald's and Chipotle, they say they're not joint employers, so they have no responsibility for, you know, wage theft and that sort of thing. But, you know, there are others who say, no, you actually do, um, you are a joint employer, so you take some responsibility. That's still kind of up in the air as far as like federal law goes. I want to dig into this, this question of failing to penalize repeat offenders. Um, your report has a really great graph showing that you know, most stolen wages are paid back. Some aren't, but, but most are paid back. 
Mm -hmm. you also write that damages are rarely ordered for repeat offenders. I think it's what, 14% right now? And, yeah. and so I'm curious how we square this, you know, decent, if imperfect, ability to win back pay with the seeming inability to assess damages in, in almost all cases. Yeah, you know, and I talked to the Department of Labor and I tried to understand like why they're not doing that in most cases, because it's it seems like it would be like an obvious thing to, you know, you don't want to just ask companies to pay back the money because then they'll be like, oh, if I get caught, all I have to do is just pay back the money I owed anyway. So I'll just keep doing this and maybe I won't get caught. Um, so you'd think that, you know, ordering damages would make them think twice about doing it. But um, the Department of Labor said, you know, there are many reasons why we don't do it, seek it all the time. One is, you know, this depends on the evidence, depends how many lawyers we have to like take on the case if they don't pay back, um, pay the damages. So I didn't really get a very clear answer. I just think the Department of Labor has just been very lenient with 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 uh, employers and they they don't want to do that. Um, they don't want to um, order companies to pay more. They just want them to pay the money back. So that's what it seems like to me. You mentioned not enough lawyers to, to pursue cases. And I think one of the central themes in this report is a staffing shortage at the Department of Labor. And it, it seems like uh, that the department would need to hire, I think, 18 times the number of investigators it currently has to reach the number recommended by the Fair Labor Standards Act. And I'm just curious on your thoughts on this. I mean, do we need a staffing increase of that size to, to effectively enforce uh, wage theft? And uh, you know, what kind of time and resources are required to get DOL to a proper staffing level? Yeah, you know, the, uh, the United Nations recommends like about what uh, each investigator having like 10,000, being responsible for like 10,000 employee, uh, employers or yeah and um so we're way like below that i don't know like what the the magical number is but it would i mean the the, the department would need to like at least double the amount of investigators that they have right now because they're just this is such a widespread problem and it, ha it happens across all industries yes there are some industries that you know uh, commit wage theft more than others but it's really like it's a really widespread problem so they would need to to be able to have enough investigators to go and do like surprise investigations, they need so much more. And then another problem is that a lot of the companies will just be like, no, I'm not gonna pay back the money because I think you're wrong. And then the Department of Labor doesn't do anything. They'll just close the case and not always, but they just, they don't prosecute them because the Department of Labor doesn't have many lawyers to prosecute uh, companies that won't pay back. But when you think about it, like, you know, I think it's just also just society, how it views, like, for example, if you're a worker and you steal from your employer, more than once, like you're, you're gonna get jail time probably. But um, it's just that the wage theft is considered a mo for the most part a civil infraction and it's just not viewed, you know, if an employer takes from their employees, it's just not viewed as a crime in most cases. So it could be it could be escalated to a crime if the Department of Labor thinks that it's, it's, it's serious and egregious enough, but it's just not viewed the same way. And just to take a step back, can you uh paint a picture for our listeners of the racial and gender dynamics that sort of overlay this, this income issue? Yeah, so another reason um, people, like experts pointed out to me, you know, it's not just the low wage workers that are most susceptible to wage theft. Another reason is, yeah, most of low wage workers in this country, the majority are people of color and they're immigrants. And so they are like, I think twice as, like, I know Latinos, or twice as likely as white Americans to experience wage theft. I think uh, black workers are about 50% more likely. And a lot of that has to do with like occupational segregation. You know, a lot of people of color um, are segregated into, you know, low wage jobs, um, service industry jobs. And that's so they, 
they're also more vulnerable vulnerable to wage theft because of that. And um, you know, immigrants in particular, um, they may not know the laws. And especially if you're undocumented, one misconception is that undocumented workers uh, don't have these kind of labor protections, but they do. They're they are protected by the Fair Labor Standards Act. And you can't just not pay someone and be like, oh, well, they're undocumented, so we don't need to pay them. No, you do have to. So they, they're assuming that immigrants don't know that they are they are eligible for a minimum wage and overtime. So that's why they're particularly targeted. Sure. Turning to some reforms here, you mentioned a wage theft ordinance that was passed in Philadelphia in 2016 that seems to improve upon federal wage theft policy in a lot of ways including you know, increasing the statute of limitations and a deadline for city staff to report or to investigate reports. And I'm curious, do we have good data yet on how effective this local approach has been relative to the federal approach? Yeah, you know, I haven't seen anything like measuring the effectiveness. I'm, I bet you anything that's something that they're working on because that law was passed in, they should, they should have some good data by now. It was passed, it went into effect, I think in 2016. So they should have some data on that. Um, I don't know that it, I haven't seen any reports on that, but one interesting thing that I, you know, that I spoke, uh, I spoke to a lot of experts and, you know, talking about reforms on the federal level or city or state level, they're like, you know, states and cities, they can revoke permits and uh, licenses to companies that commit wage stuff. That would be a huge deterrent. And that's what Philadelphia does. And it, so it, it won't issue licenses or permits to companies that, you know, repeatedly break the law. And, you know, the federal government could do something like that. You know, they, they give franchise licenses out to companies um, they have contracts, uh, federal contracts with a lot of major corporations, and they don't take into account whether these corporations or companies are committing wage theft. Um, they, you know, it could be they could revoke the licenses if they really wanted to. Yeah, I, I was kind of curious when thinking through this, you know, there are some powers that local governments seem to have exclusive control over, like like zoning and in some cases education. And I'm curious, are, are there ways that there are unique powers that local governments have that they can leverage against, you know, companies that engage in wage theft that the federal government might not have? Yeah, so there are like some, um, there are some like specific permits and licenses that the federal government has no like jurisdiction over. So for example, like restaurants that commit wage theft, you know, maybe they won't get their liquor license, you know, like a, a city could revoke their liquor license or a county could revoke their liquor license. So there's a lot of local licenses, like building permits, construction companies commit a lot of wage theft. Not all of them, but you know, the, it's an industry with high violations, and you know they could cities could revoke like building permits for companies. I mean, they, they have a lot of power over um, businesses, and so you know they have a lot of power to make sure that businesses are are being ethical and following the law, and and so that's something that the federal government does not have jurisdiction over. Sure, turning to the federal level, you know, beyond increasing staff levels, uh, like we talked about, and beyond extending the statute of limitations, what kinds of other reforms are needed to strengthen enforcement at the federal level? Yeah, so I think that the main thing was what experts were telling me, they're like, you know, government contractors, like they get millions, if not billions of money from the federal government for these contracts, like Google and Amazon, and uh, there are a lot of big companies and they could, the federal government could say, hey, we're not gonna give contracts to you or your subcontractors if, if you guys are appearing in our own data of having labor violation or labor violations, wage theft violations. That was something that a lot of people were telling me. Um, I'm trying to think of what else um, they were suggesting, but that's the one that comes to mind right now. Sure. Those are the last of my prepared questions. Do you have any closing thoughts? 
Um, let's see. So hmm. I do think that so one of my one of the, when I was a newspaper reporter, I'm not gonna say what newspaper it was when I started out, you know, I was an hourly employee and um this is like one of the most common forms of wage theft. And I think a lot of workers just don't realize it. It's, you know, there's um, the boss said, Hey, you know, we're going to stop. The company doesn't want to pay overtime anymore. We're not paying overtime anymore, but we'd be required, not required. Like it would, we'd be expected to work longer hours, more than 40 hours a week. And we weren't getting paid for those out. Not only were we not getting paid for those extra hours, we weren't getting time and a half, obviously um, as we we're supposed to. And I think, you know, and I, at the time I was early in my career and I just thought that was, just how things were done. I didn't know any better, but I think that is such a common scenario that companies will say we don't pay overtime and then just expect workers to keep hourly workers to keep working more than 40 hours a week. And that's, that's illegal. That's, that's wage theft. And I think um, workers just need to be more aware of that and realize they have rights and they can file a complaint and, and they deserve that money. Sure. Thank you for sharing that story. No um, problem. And I guess lastly, uh, for listeners who may be impacted by wage theft, what's the best way to uh, get in touch with a lawyer or, or, or find a way forward to get uh, back pay? Yeah, so my, my recommendation, because I've spoken to lawyers and also to um, other like worker advocates. So first check to see if your state has a strong, has its own wage theft law, because that will be stronger than the federal wage theft law. So there are states like Oklahoma, California, New York, um, which are the Massachusetts, that they have stronger wage theft laws. So if in that case, you can file a complaint with your state, either labor department or workforce agency, they all have different names, but file a complaint with them because their penalties will be higher. Uh, workers will have more protections. You, but some people prefer going through, like just getting a lawyer. And lawyers won't take on all cases, wage theft cases, because some of them are involve such little amount of money that it might not be worth it to them. But if looking for an attorney to just discuss it, it's they're called their wage and hour attorneys. And what they'll do is that they won't charge attorney's fees because if they go to court and it turns out that the company was at fault or they'll settle a case, that company will end up paying the attorney's fees so workers don't have to front any money. So that's that's an option. And then the third option, if none of that is working, then I would have suggest with the US Department of Labor, as I mentioned in the story, they don't, they take a while to, to investigate complaints and they don't normally have um, order damages for employees. So it's not ideal, but it is an option. You know, they, they, will, they will call the employer and say, hey, you, you guys owe some money to your workers. That was Alexia Fernandez-Campbell, senior reporter at the Center for Public Integrity. For this evening's final conversation, reporter Amara Evering talks with UMass Amherst professor of history, Dr. Samuel Redman, about the recent uproar over academic abuse of the remains of two black girls killed in the Philadelphia MOVE bombing in 1985. Redman is author of Bone Rooms, From Scientific Racism to Human Prehistory in Museums. So how did this history of mass bone collection start in the U.S.? Um, and what was anthropology's role in that history? So there's a very long tradition 
Uh, it, it was as a historian, one of that was a great question that I had to wrestle with in, in thinking about my book Bone Rooms was where do where do you even begin in trying to tell this story? Uh, Thomas Jefferson even wrote a book called Notes on the State of Virginia, in which he describes digging up human remains and, and studying them uh, on his property in Monticello. So uh, in, in many ways, this has a very deep history extending back a very long time in the United States. But in the mid 19th century, around the time of the Civil War, uh, a whole host of medical you know, professionals, I, you might, we might call them scientists, army medical officers, and uh, an emergent group of anthropologists all became really invested in uh, collecting human remains and attempting to study them. So uh, they were not only writing and publishing about this, they were encouraging other people to do the same thing. So that's when you start to get not just these modestly sized collections, still really significant, but then you start to uh, get institutions like the Smithsonian have 30,000 sets of human remains today. So there's a long path from there to there, but uh, it's, it is definitely the case that there is a long history of uh, extracting human remains and trying to use science or proto-science to understand them. And I think you noted in your book the disparity um, in where these remains were coming from. So you said, quote, the number of American Indian and African American bodies that the museum acquired vastly outpaced the number of European American remains. So um, can you speak a little bit more about that and why was there, disparity, there this disparity in history? The medical scientists and the anthropologists of the era were virtually obsessed with the idea of race and racial difference and wanting to understand uh, specifically in the American context, black Americans and uh, native Americans that were uh, suddenly in, enmeshed in some way in, in the national fabric. Uh, there was a deep level of othering in this process and a deep level of exploitation in this process. Uh, it is also the case that there are a handful of European or America, uh, uh, white American remains that are in these museum collections as well. But as your question suggests, it is uh, a history that is so deeply marked by colonialism and racist scientific exploitation of these uh, uh, people that the number of Native American remains and the number of African American remains vastly outpaced uh, white bodies that were acquired by these same institutions. And how were those remains acquired? Was it just, you know, it was, was it people get graves getting dug up? Was it on battlegrounds? Kind of just describe it briefly. So I think this is was a real challenge to truly wrap my mind around as a historian. And I think we need to consider this question and think much more broadly about how these remains ended up at museums. It is the case that there were archeological excavations of known cemeteries that would uh, demarcate where remains came from and, and try to document that process. But remains came to museums from so many different sources. And this is what I think is really important. And that's something I tried to go into in Bone Rooms. Medical officers, accidental discoveries, the US Army and Navy, 
there were many, many different sources of these remains coming to museums, and we need to take a more fulsome look at that history, understand that this history is often deeply linked to that, those stories of colonialism and the expansion across the American West, the exploitation of African-American bodies, especially in the U.S. South, but across the entire United States. So, you know, we need to understand that it's really difficult to generalize these histories because of that. Um, but it also makes it this really fascinating and important problem that reveals a tremendous amount about who we are. And hopefully, when we rethink these issues, we can consider how far we've come in a different way by reflecting this uh, change that people are calling for and confronting it much more aggressively. And I think I, I saw you use the words colonial anthropology in your work. Um, what is colonial anthropology um, and how does that fit into this conversation? Anthropologists, not just in the United States, but in Great Britain and in Germany and in France, benefited from colonialism in a whole host of ways. It allowed them access to places that they did not have access to previously. It provided resources, uh, uh, both financial and uh, also in terms of transportation to and from these places. Uh, the US Army frequently shipped material back to the Smithsonian uh, to give one example. So there, there are a whole host of reasons why colonialism and uh, anthropology really became intimately linked. Uh, it is the case that we've, um, uh, anthropologists have known this history for a long time and have tried in, in many meaningful ways to confront this on some level. But as we will continue to see with these stories uh, uh, continuing to emerge, we've really only scratched the surface of this story. I mean, the, the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was intended on some level to address some of these concerns as they related to Native American collections, but really only just with these breaking news stories and uh, in recent months have, have people uh, broadly uh, started to think about this as a problem that impacts many different people beyond what the existing legislation has accounted for. And kind of, you know, coming into modern day, as you we were saying, these recent breaking news stories, um, could you briefly describe the situation with um, University of Pennsylvania, Princeton University, and the remaining of the remainings of the two Wubom victims? So it is the case that in the 19th century, when anthropology was emerging as a discipline in the United States, they were really committed to collecting a vast number of things. They were deeply committed to collecting uh, human remains, but also as I write about in my next book on salvage anthropology, a whole host of things ranging from the most sacred objects to the most mundane things, thinking that this was a vanishing resource. This is this limited resource. So there was this level of urgency and uh, a commitment to action at these institutions that were also some of the first uh, uh, introducing anthropology as a discipline in the United States. Again, this is this massive thing. It's hard to generalize. Harvard ends up with 30,000 sets of human remains through medical uh, collecting and, and a whole host of other ways. But anthropology emerged as a discipline 
one of the four fields of anthropology, which also included linguistics and archaeology and uh, ethnography, the studies of culture, uh, was also physical anthropology or biological anthropology. So deeply connected to the history of anthropology at these institutions and the history of medical science at these very important, really nationally prominent institutions are these, uh, these histories that we've been describing of colonialism and medical exploitation. I think it matters a great deal what happens at these institutions because they are so nationally prominent and because of activism and media attention, they're now sort of in a position to, to potentially take a leadership step on this. But I, I, I only sort of see them as, as kind of doing the bare minimum that, that they need to do in acknowledging this. So I think there needs to be a more aggressive uh, means of uh, addressing this as a problem. And we also need to understand that this is not just something that impacts the Harvards of the world, that there were dozens and or maybe even hundreds of colleges and universities all across the country that have similar collections. They might not be as large and they might not date back as far in history, but they still are really consequential. Briefly, what's happening at Penn is that over time, some uh, 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 human remains from medical coroner's offices, police investigations were also brought into these same collections as these major repositories. People recently discovered uh, that uh, remains that were taken from the, uh, the MOVE bombing episode in the 1980s, this uh, horrific moment of police violence where a bomb was used, uh, uh, killing a, a number of people, including children, uh, that bones of one or two individuals were then brought to these collections, shuttled back and forth between these institutions, which is shocking to a number of people, as it should be, but one needs to understand, too, that these were treated as resources like akin to library books, where they would be traded from one institution to the other. Um, and uh, seeing uh, for some scientists, they would make statements in the in the 70s and 80s saying, if you rebury these, it's like book burning. So it's really difficult to see these recent examples of people that uh, their relatives are you know, still alive, people who knew them are still alive, and, and we should honor that and, and know what, they, uh, what their uh, uh, kin want to do with these remains. It is also suggestive of this much larger story that includes uh, a, a, a history of disabuse in uh, uh, terms of collecting these remains. Sorry, the book burning comment really stuck with me. Um, <laughs> that is very unnerving to hear um, academics speak like that. And it's, it's also interesting in that, uh, you know, some people toss out things like, well, we could do DNA research on these and, and sort of that will be this sort of silver bullet. Um, often not understanding that DNA research or testing of this kind often includes destructive analysis in which some of the remains are destroyed in order to get uh, these, uh, uh, this sort of uh, data. So I think it's profoundly important in light of all of this to change the pattern of control from purely science-driven institutions that have uh, only with time and fresh blood really started to uh, uh, understand some of these problems to the communities themselves to native people uh, who are have through the NAGPRA law have been seated 
some of this process, but not nearly enough. Um, but also understanding what the families of these individuals want to see for the future of them and uh, 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 Black anthropologists who have recently come together to make a statement uh, uh, for the repatriation and restitution uh, 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 in response to this episode. So um, it's, it is really unnerving. Uh, and people have written letters to the editor in prominent magazine calling me anti-science, uh, for example. But um, I'm, I, I, don't, I, I don't think that we should have a limitless quest for human knowledge that uh, ignores our ethical standards, our right to freedom and expression of religion, and our very profoundly important treatment and burial of the dead. And I don't think that that stops with sort of the recent dead. I think that includes people who have been dead a, a long time. They deserve that from us and we owe that to them. And just um, going back a little bit to how these bones were acquired, um, of course, uh, when they were identified remains, um, an anthropologist, as you noted, just kind of took them home uh, <laughs> after they were unsure about who the remains may belong to. Um, and I just want you to briefly answer, is that common? You know, because to for me, um, for someone to just take something um, from a scene like that is it almost it doesn't sit right doesn't sound right. So um, can you speak a little bit about that briefly? Yeah, as awful as this is to consider, um, uh, these, these remains really were collected, cataloged, traded, put on display as resources, as, as scientific resources. Um, and uh, they were conceptualized in, in that way through this, uh, through this process. Um, and there are many, many examples uh, that were even sometimes uh, publicly talked about in, in the, the, the newspaper. Um, you know, this is, of course, uh, back in the, in, you know, the early 1900s when there would have been many New York City newspapers and a small notice of these debates might not have caught a whole lot of attention. But publicly reported in the news media would be uh, uh, episodes like the death of a visiting Inuit person and a debate between Bellevue Hospital and the American Museum of Natural History over the fate of those remains, with them eventually ending up at the American Museum of Natural History. So this, you know, was like I say, it was reported. It was new, it was considered a newsworthy event. This sort of debate of the fate of these remains uh, in the early 20th century, but it wasn't for I believe another 80 or 100 years uh, until those remains were sent home uh, or, or publicly acknowledged really fully that those are uh, that they continue to be in the collection. So this is a really unfortunately common type of, of thing. This is a especially egregious event in Philadelphia in that it involves uh, really relatively deceased people who were uh, uh, broadcast on a, uh, an online course that had many participants. And all of this was done without the permission of still living individuals who are family members. So uh, that is definitely an egregious uh, example and one that we should sit with and think about the, the, the consequences of that. It is also reflective of this unfortunately much larger story. And so speaking of that online course, a lot of people found it disturbing, disturbing the way the bones were being handled in that course, the 
the holding up of the bones, the smelling of the bones. Um, you know, I believe that she had an assistant with her, a student with her saying, oh, maybe the, the person was 18 or maybe they were this age or, you know, people, there was like this emotional detachment. Um, do you believe that there is an emotional detachment in academia that is common when it comes to things like this? Or is this just, oh, this is just that professor. This is just that anthropologist. Well, I, it's, this is a, a great and really complex question. So I think uh, one can generalize that academia has a problem with this, yes. It is also the case that there are academics of color who have been talking about this for a very long time uh, and talking about the emotional import of this. So for example, uh, I, I quote a professor of education, James Ridingen, who uh, uh, has this really powerful quote that I'm paraphrasing, saying that when you come across one of these uh, remains in a museum, it's like encountering the death of a relative over and over and over again. So um, people have known about this and have talked about the emotional significance of this within academic circles and publications for some time. Has that reached a tipping point? Absolutely not. And um, it is the case that protest and uh, uh, public attention can result in public statements from these museums. But I think uh, many of us would like to see much more happen in terms of concrete action, uh, in terms of not just sort of studying this as a problem, but, but taking actual action and, and returning these remains. Um, and, and again, not, you know, it is really important, these individual instances that get called attention to, but it should point us to the fact that this is a much larger story of hundreds of thousands, uh, perhaps more than half a million remains across the entire United States. And we really don't know. We haven't had a full inventory of how large this is as a, as a problem. So uh, I think even just wrapping our minds around that is an important step, uh, but also doing something much larger and more concrete in response to this is, is really ne necessary. And I'm also going to ask you a, another complex question that I, I don't know if you could answer, but um, do you believe that some groups of people are gravitated more to when it comes to studying things like their bones, will bones um, doing certain research um, on bodies? Are there certain groups that are targeted more? Um, are, are there certain groups that are easy to detach more um, emotionally? So. It's, a t it's a, an interesting question. There, um, one of the things that I write about in Bone Rooms that uh, really uh, surprised me uh, was an individual named W. Montague Cobb, who was um, a, a, a medical uh, uh, he was a doctor and a physician and a researcher and a professor at Howard University, later becomes uh, the, uh, the head of the NAACP for, the, for a time. And he became interested in a lot of these uh, really prevalent claims in the medical world uh, about, uh, uh, we'll call it what it was, white supremacy and scientific racism and the veneer of science and medicine in that. He, uh, you know, starts doing things like he asks uh, Jesse Owens for x-rays of his legs after his uh, Olympic prominence and writes an article that says, uh, that's republished quite widely that says, 
that this has nothing to do with his race. Jesse Owens is just a really great athlete. And we can see that by studying, uh, you know, his skeleton, uh, you know, his, his uh, anatomy and, uh, you know, understanding those, uh, those sorts of things. Stephen Jay Gould, many years later, writes a book called The Mismeasure of Man, in which he goes back and uh, remeasures some of the skulls in the Samuel George Morton collection and takes to task Morton for bad science in terms of, uh, you know, not just the way in which this was wrongly extrapolated that that skull size was related to intelligence, which is not the case. We know it's much more complicated than that. Um, but also his, just his measurements were bad. And now people have even gone back and, and challenged some of those findings. So um, it's, I think we, it's a, this vast problem that has been really dominated by the exploitation of these bodies, uh, especially people of color, uh, most commonly Native Americans, many African American remains ending up in these institutions. Uh, it's also this really vast problem where remains would be sent uh, from Japan uh, randomly in a box with a note. Uh, and, you know, so what do we do about the international question as it relates to the, the collection of, of these, these remains? Um, how do we potentially consider uh, if research were to be done on any of these remains, could we, can we do it in direct consultation and for the benefit of the communities that uh, have historically been exploited? I think that's really the only way that, that I can see a path forward for, for any sort of meaningful use of these in, in terms of research and, and teaching is that uh, we need to, 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 to think about this from a completely different ethical point of view. And so what are the cultural, historical, even interpersonal implications of keeping bones like this? Um, we have an example where it's much more the history is very recent, um, but just generally, what, what does that do um, to certain communities? It's an important question. I, I imagine that from everything that I've heard and, and read, that, that many people really find this to be upsetting and traumatic uh, in, in terms of uh, providing a level of, uh, creating a level of injurious harm that needs to be taken seriously and thought about from a again a radically different perspective um and and museums i think really need to be compelled to go the extra mile in that way we often talk about what as it relates to nagpra this law the native american graves protection and repatriation act uh about the letter and the spirit of the law that a lot of institutions will really only go so far as the letter of the law requires them to uh, and that uh, is not necessarily, uh, speaking now as a public historian, that's not an, an effective way of working with uh, a, a community, sort of like hesitantly uh, only making concessions after legal battles, uh, uh, holding these remains within your institution that provide a level or create a level of uh, traumatic injury. All of that is not at all a recipe for creating any sort of positive dynamic. So this needs, again, this needs to be really rethought. And uh, potentially in, in many of these cases, I contend that that means uh, repatriation and reburial. 
in other cases, there may be other uh, communities around the world uh, that are interested in, in holding these remains closer to home, maybe still in a museum, maybe another sort of solution. I think um, these, uh, these sorts of decisions need to be, again, made in consultation with trust that's built up over many years. And I think the number one thing that's coming out of this is a, a break in trust. Let me also just sneak in that it's been the case for more than a century uh, Americans, uh, people around the world have had this really uh, sort of uh, maybe diametrically opposed or maybe this sort of uh, phenomenon in tension. And we can see this still with the Body Worlds exhibitions and the many copycat exhibitions that are very popular. You know, like you can go to Luxor Casino in Las Vegas and see this, you know, an exhibit on quote, real human bodies that have been plastinated and, and put on display. And they're immensely popular. They've been on display for, for many years. Why is that? Like, you know, I, I still puzzle over that to a certain extent. And I think people for a long time have wrestled with or thought of that tension that many people are deeply disturbed and will go nowhere near these sorts of exhibitions. On the other hand, there are many other people that find them really compelling and are willing to pay money to go see these types of exhibitions. So I, I think it's it's this ongoing problem and, and one that we don't really think about uh, all that that often. So I appreciate our, our taking an interest in it. So I know that you said, quote, there is nothing natural about systematically collecting and studying the dead. Can you expand on what you meant by this as my last question? So if you look at uh, uh, patterns of, of human behavior uh, around the world, the vast majority of human societies throughout time have had some sort of end of life treatment that uh, involves uh, sending people on to the next chapter, uh, whatever that, that is in sort of their uh, uh, spiritual global worldview. So it strikes me as an interesting and complicated and uh, intensely problematic phenomenon when you start collecting and amassing thousands of, of remains, cataloging them, writing numbers uh, on their bodies with, with ink. This is a, a, a change in terms of our cultural patterns surrounding these, uh, um, these uh, bodies. One thing that I think people often misunderstand is that we sometimes talk about science as this purely objective thing or this thing that is somehow apolitical. But historians of science will tell you that uh, always connected to science has been some level of politics. And uh, it is certainly not objective in the way that many of us sort of think that it might be objective. And the biases that we carry with us, including uh, the, the white supremacist bias that, that so many scientists have carried with them throughout uh, the course of these studies ends up uh, really becoming imbued into the nature of, of these collections. But it is, I don't think, uh, a natural phenomenon. I think it's, it's sort of this uh, thing that we've constructed a, a, as a culture and as a society. And in that way, it's something that we can reconsider and deconstruct. It's not something that we must uh, take for granted as a, an aspect of our, our society. I think it is possible, and, and this is the moment to really rethink the story of, of what this is and what it means for us today, 
who it potentially harms and how we could do better. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to ask, do you have any closing comments, anything you didn't get in uh, that you want to add? I wanted just, uh, I, I think it's really consequential that students have gotten involved in protesting in response to this. Uh, you see, as speaking now for a moment as, as a historian who teaches a modern US history class to a 120 shining faces at UMass each semester, over and over again, we see when students get involved in civil rights protests, in anti-war protests, in responding to the conditions of the moment, people start paying attention. And it, it is really frustrating work and work where you feel like people aren't listening and people aren't taking that seriously. And these sort of half-hearted, muted statements coming from museums are not uh, uh, in inspiring and uh, uh, not satisfying. I also see as someone who's been studying this for, for uh, you know, in its long trajectory, I think even in the last month, there's been an enormous amount of conversation and movement on this issue. And a lot of that is directly due to the student activists. was Dr. Samuel Redman, professor of history at UMass Amherst, in conversation with reporter Amara Evering. That does it for our 12th episode of Friday Evening Fireside. Don't miss our regular Monday morning news program at 11 a.m. on WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. This Monday is a pledge drive show, so please do support us again by visiting WPFW.org and making a contribution. This Monday, we'll take a hard look at last month's disappointing employment data, critique the wave of anti-trans legislation sweeping the nation, and hear voices of dissent on U.S. support for Israeli war crimes. All that and more, 11 a.m. on WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. For WPFW News, this is Chris Bangert-Drowns, signing off.